Meaningless. Meaningless. Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. At least that's what the Bible says. Oh, well. Welcome to Carnegie Free, everybody. Glad you're here. Well, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Tim Stratton. I worked as a pastor here uh, for about a decade. Now I work for an organization called Free Thinking Ministries, and I volunteer here at the church. Um, they call me the apologist in residence. So basically, I'm a full-time theologian and apologist. And as an apologist, I have a tendency to get just a little philosophical every once in a while. Might be an understatement for those of you who know me well. But uh, now as we survey the entire Bible as a church together, it's time to examine one of the most philosophical books of the entire Bible, Ecclesiastes. This ancient work, although beautifully written, it can be just a little bit depressing at times. In fact, many have wondered why this depressing book should even be included in the canon of Scripture? Why would it be included in the inspired Word of God when it just seems so hopeless? Well, who authored this controversial book? Well, to tell you the truth, we don't know with absolute certainty who wrote this book. Ecclesiastes is commonly attributed to King Solomon. There are several verses pointing to that might be to Solomon probably being the, the author. If so, this book of Ecclesiastes was written around 3,000 years ago. It's a long time. 3,000 years ago. That's 1,000 years before Christ, some 500 years before Socrates. Now, we just don't know with 100% certainty if it was Solomon, but the conventional belief is that the author is indeed, at least probably, Solomon, and I think it was Solomon. So for the rest of this sermon today, I'm going to refer to the author of Ecclesiastes as Solomon. Well, although Solomon mentions God a few times throughout this book, Ecclesiastes really describes life without God, almost from an atheistic perspective. At the least, uh, this book is written from somebody who does not always have God in mind. Somebody who does not have eternity in mind. This is a, an example of a person who might say that they believe in God, but they really live life as an atheist. Have you ever met anybody like that before? I think if we're honest, most of us would admit that sometimes we struggle with that ourselves. Yeah, sure, we say we believe in God and that we're Christians, but we're not focused on him. We're actually focused on things of this world instead. I've been guilty of this in the past. But King Solomon here is focused on trying to find physical happiness, and he wants it now. He attempts to find pleasure in riches and entertainment and luxury in hundreds of women. And although he attains all of these things, he's left feeling empty. 
the worldview in which Ecclesiastes is written, leads Solomon to exclaim what I echoed earlier, meaningless, meaningless, utterly meaningless, everything is meaningless. That's what it says in the Bible, Ecclesiastes 1 verse 2. This is how King Solomon begins his book of Ecclesiastes. And this theme is continued throughout its entirety. In other words, when one does not live with God in mind, life quickly becomes pointless. It's all pointless apart from God. Life is all in vain. Life is meaningless and absurd apart from God. Let's pray. God, I want to thank you for your inspired word. I want to thank you for your, for your perfection and your perfect word written by imperfect people. Thank you, God, for loving us perfectly, even when we're so imperfect. And I thank you that you do use imperfect people like me. And I thank you for even using an imperfect person like King Solomon to teach us about reality and to teach us how we ought to live through his mistakes. God, I pray that you would continue to transform us and I pray that we would leave here today with a new sense of vision. Amen. Well, Ecclesiastes is a book of perspective. The narrative of the teacher, as the NIV says, reveals the depression that inevitably results from seeking happiness in worldly things. Seeking happiness in things other than God. You've probably heard of what Blaise Pascal referred to as that God-shaped hole or that vacuum in all of us. That God-shaped hole. That we all try to fill that hole. If we try to fill that hole with anything other than God, we're going to feel empty. And we do. We try to fill that God-shaped hole with all kinds of things except for God. And all these things ultimately fail us. With that in mind, consider more snippets of meaninglessness from the first chapter of Ecclesiastes. Solomon says, what do people gain from all their labors at which they toil under the sun? Generations come and generations go, but the earth remains. Solomon seems to be saying, why do we work so hard? We're all going to die anyway. He goes on to say, and the wind blows to the south and turns to the north. Round and round it goes. Wait, wait a second. You know, some people say that the Old Testament teaches a flat earth. But I mean, how can the wind go round and round from north to south if the earth is flat? I digress. That's beside the point. <laughs> but Solomon does say, what has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. There is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which one can say, look, there, this is something new. No, it's, it's, it was here already long ago. It was here before our time. And he says this, no one remembers the former generations, and even those yet to come will not be remembered by those who followed them. You see, Solomon's pointing out that everything that you think is unique to you, 
even your unique thoughts? Well, guess what? They've, they've probably already been thought of by somebody before, long ago. Yeah, I, I know this all too well. As a philosophically inclined theologian, part of my job is to come up, try to craft these new and unique arguments for the existence of God and maybe other theological or metaphysical truths. Yeah, how many of you do that for a living too? Yeah, I, I have a weird job, right? Um, but yeah, this is what I do, and, and, and I try to craft these arguments, and then, you know, I work so hard on these things, I'm like, hey, here's something new under the sun, and then somebody says, hey, Tim, guess what? C.S. Lewis was onto this several decades ago. Meaningless. It's all meaningless. Somebody else has thought about this before. Thanks a lot, Clive. Meaningless. But worse than that, everybody's going to die anyway. And all of your thoughts will eventually be forgotten too. By everybody. So say goodbye to legacy, ultimately speaking. Nobody's going to remember your name. Sure, your name might be remembered a little longer than the next guy's. But ultimately, who cares? Big whoop-dee-doo. It doesn't really matter. No one's going to remember your name. Eventually, you'll be forgotten. So it doesn't really matter what you do. Your life's meaningless. Is that true? Well, Solomon, with this worldview in mind, continues. And he says, I've seen all the things that are done under the sun. All of them are meaningless, a chasing after the wind. And Solomon continues his rant in chapter 2. He notes that all that he has experienced and all that he has achieved, which is really quite impressive when you think about it, yet he still feels this depression and this emptiness and this meaninglessness. In fact, we receive some, some foreshadowing of what we read in 1 John 2, 15 and 16, which is written centuries later. 1 John says this, do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. Now consider what Solomon wrote centuries earlier. He says, I tried cheering myself with wine and, and with an embracing folly. I undertook great projects. I built houses for myself, which were bigger than the temple, by the way, and planted vineyards. I made gardens and parks and planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made reservoirs to water groves of flourishing trees. I bought male and female slaves and, and other slaves who were born in my house. He seems to be proud of that. And I also owned more herds and flocks than anyone in Jerusalem before me. He says, I amassed silver and gold for myself and the treasure of kings and provinces. I acquired male and female singers and a harem as well. A harem. The delights of a man's heart, he says. I became greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem before me. Now notice that Solomon clearly turns his back on the commands of God in order, to, in order to search for his own personal happiness. 
Now, as Adrian noted last week, passages of Scripture like this are descriptive, not prescriptive. Some people say, well, look what it says in the Bible. King Solomon had hundreds of wives, must be what God wants. No! This is not prescriptive of how you ought to live. It's descriptive of how somebody done messed up. It's descriptive of what a sinner did. It's describing what not to do. It's not prescribing what you ought to do. Many times people confuse a a description with a prescription. So don't make that mistake. Like I said, King Solomon messed up. He done messed up. He missed the mark. He did not live according to God's intent. Now, for example, in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus clarifies God's intent in Genesis. And and Jesus says this, From the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, and the two shall become one flesh. Consequently, they are no longer two, but one flesh. This is Mark 10, 6 through 8. My friend Greg Kokel of Standard Reason Ministries does a great job summing this up. He says, he says, you can sum up Jesus' teachings here, that, that Jesus is describing God's intent to humanity when it comes to marriage. And it looks like this. One man with one woman becoming one flesh for one lifetime. One man with one woman becoming one flesh for one lifetime. That's what Jesus said God's intent is for marriage. Culture today might tell you something different, but I'm going to side with Jesus. I don't know about you. But King Solomon missed the the mark. He seemed to miss the whole with one woman part. In fact, it wasn't one woman for King Solomon. It was hundreds and hundreds. This is not God's intent for any human. But Solomon missed the mark and instead lived a life of sin. Solomon continued to make this clear. Check out what he says. He says, I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all my labor. And this was the reward for all my toil. Yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless. A chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. Indeed, Solomon seemed to first proclaim the message that many of us heard in the 1970s written by the great band of existential philosophers known as Kansas. They wrote a song called Dust in the Wind. And it says this, all we do crumbles to the ground though we refuse to see. Dust in the wind. All we are is dust in the wind. Is that true? Well, Solomon continues and adds that it's better to be wise instead of a fool, but then he he came to realize that the same fate overtakes them both. He realizes that he shares the same fate as the fool, and he says, what then do I gain by being wise? He says to himself, this too is meaningless for the wise like the fool will not be long remembered 
The days have already come when both have been forgotten. Like the fool, the wise too must die. Well, Solomon is right, right? If we don't keep an eternal perspective, if we don't keep God in mind, then life is meaningless. At least it seems that way. In fact, this is something that I constantly ask atheists when I'm on the college campus or maybe having conversations with atheists on social media, and I'll point out to them, I want them to think about these things, these existential things. And I'll I'll say, hey, look, if God does not exist, then humanity was not created on purpose or for any specific purpose. If God doesn't exist, you're an accident. There's no real purpose to your life. You were not created on purpose or for a purpose if God doesn't exist. So if humanity was not created on purpose or for any specific purpose, then there's no real purpose or what philosophers call an an objective purpose to your life. And if there's no real purpose to our lives, then it simply does not really matter how we live our lives. We're all going to die anyway. We're all going to have the same fate. So who cares? how you live your life. On top of all of that, almost to add insult to injury, according to scientists, the entire universe is ultimately going to be destroyed. Not just our planet, not just our galaxy, but the entire universe will be completely destroyed given enough time. There's no escape. Talk about no legacy. Ultimately, no one will remember your name if the universe is left to its own devices. We all share the same fate along with the universe itself. Death. Say goodbye to legacy. No one will remember your name or anything that you did eventually. So it doesn't really matter in the long run if you lived a life like Hitler or if you lived like Mother Teresa. They share the same fate. So who cares how you live? At least if atheism is true, meaningless, meaningless, utterly meaningless, everything is meaningless. Are you depressed yet? Solomon's exactly right. If atheism is true, life would be objectively meaningless if humanity was not created on purpose or for a specific purpose. That's the bad news. That's the bad news. But the good news is this. God does exist. And he created you on purpose and for a specific purpose. What is that purpose? God created you to be in a personal love relationship with him. To be loved by God and to love him in return, and to love all people for eternity. That is why you exist, and to miss that mark is to miss the purpose of life. To miss that mark is to waste your life. Don't waste your life. Live according to the purpose in which you were created. Jesus made this clear. Jesus lets us know our purpose in life. In Matthew 5, 44 and 22, 37 through 39, we can summarize what Jesus taught by focusing on two things. Jesus said, hey, 
Let me clarify this for you with two simple and easy to remember commands. Number one, love God first. With every aspect of your existence, with every fiber of your being, love God first. And the second is like it. He basically says this, hey, everybody love everybody. Everybody love everybody. Love each person of the Trinity and every person the Trinity ever created. Everybody love everybody. That's why you exist. That's why I created you. It's all about love. And you know, when I think about that, I'm not saying our, our church is perfect, but we get our mission statement right when I compare it to the words of Jesus. Our, our mission here at the church is building a transformational community by growing in love with Christ and all people. I love our, our statement. <clears throat> It's growing in love with Christ and all people, not just other Christians, all people. I think, I think we're getting that much right. That's our goal. And Jesus, he even hammered this point home by offering the, the parable of the Good Samaritan in which our hospital is named. The parable of the Good Samaritan, Luke 10, 25 through 37, is an example of how humans ought to go out of our way to make sure an individual of a different people group flourishes, even if that person from that other group of people is from a group who is previously hostile to us in the past. It doesn't matter. You are supposed to go out of your way to make sure they flourish. That's the love we're talking about. It doesn't care how they've treated you in the past. You show them love. This is why you exist, to love all people. This love is the purpose of life. But one cannot truly love others unless they're connected to the ultimate source of love. One must be in a true relationship with God. The Bible says that God is love. So apart from God, you can't properly love to the fullest extent. And apart from God, you will ultimately crash into depression. Sure, you might be able to distract yourself for a while with the things of this world. But ultimately, you will crash into depression apart from God. Sadly, many choose to be depressed for eternity. It does not have to be that way. So when we attempt to find our fulfillment in all kinds of other things apart from God, no matter how rich you are, no matter how good looking you are, no matter how many Super Bowls you win, apart from God, you will still feel empty and depressed. You will be empty on the inside. That God-shaped hole will still be void. Sure, winning a Super Bowl might be great. I'm still hoping to win one someday. But I contend that even winning a Super Bowl could not be properly enjoyed the way it should be if you're not properly enjoying God first. Unless one has a personal relationship with Jesus Christ first. So speaking of winning Super Bowls, 
Let's talk about Tom Brady. Now, I'm not here to judge Tom Brady. Please hear me. Well, forget it. I am going to judge Tom Brady. I'm going to judge Tom Brady as probably the best quarterback of all time. The GOAT. G-O-A-T. Greatest of all time. In my opinion, Tom Brady is the best, the greatest quarterback of all time. That's how I will judge Tom Brady. And that's the extent of my judgments towards him. He's the best. But what I want to do now is simply examine Brady's own words and let his own words speak for Tom Brady. With that in mind, it seems to me that Tom Brady might have offered the closest example to King Solomon by today's standards. Think about it. Tom Brady, he's got five Super Bowl rings, extreme wealth, a supermodel for a wife, a beautiful family, multiple cars and huge houses. His NFL career continues into his 40s. He's still in great shape. And his legacy as the GOAT, the greatest of all time, is secure. Yet despite all of his success, his fame, his riches, after winning multiple Super Bowls and MVPs, Brady stated, there has to be more than this. There has to be more than this. More than this, Tom Brady? You've got so much more than anybody else. And you still feel empty? You want more? There has to be more than this. He felt empty after achieving all that he'd set out to accomplish, probably more than he could ever have dreamt for. He still felt empty inside. That God-shaped hole was still empty. And when Brady was asked a follow-up question, after he said that, he was asked what else there could be. His only response was, I wish I knew. I wish I knew. We all find ourselves facing this question at some point. Some point in our lives, this question hunts each one of us down. Whether we're rich or poor, successful or jobless, Tom Brady or Tim Stratton, It doesn't matter. This question hunts each one of us down. One commentator wrote, it's almost like some subconscious part of our soul instinctively warns us that we have not yet discovered our purpose, that there is something more. I think think the Apostle Paul might have referred to this as the law that's written on our hearts. God writes it on our hearts and lets us know that there is a purpose to life. Yet instead, so many choose to ignore what God has made clear, and instead we seek more and more things of the world, the constant pursuit of more and more, constant consumption, death by consumption. Recently, Pastor Adrian was having a conversation with one of his pastoral colleagues in Colorado. They were specifically talking about Vail, Colorado. Has anybody been to Vail before? Raise your hand if you've been there. Many have. It's beautiful, isn't it? Breathtakingly beautiful. 
A couple of years ago, I had the opportunity to travel to Vail, spend a a few days there. I didn't go there to go skiing. No, I was attending a, a conference for those who were professional public speakers, and I need all the help I can get. So I went to this conference, and, uh, you know, it was great. I made sure to keep my windows in my hotel room open the whole time so I could see those mountains. Just simply beautiful. I, I said it was the closest thing I've ever seen to heaven on earth. Vail is beautiful. But although Vail is Amazing. Adrian's colleague made the following claim about Vail. He said, Summit County makes the Front Range feel like the Bible Belt. Let me interpret that for you. Summit County, Vail, makes the Front Range, the Denver-Boulder area, feel like the Bible Belt. Think about that. I mean, I thought, I thought after Adrian moved his family out of Boulder to Kearney, Nebraska, that there were no more Christians in Boulder. And Vail makes Boulder feel like the Bible Belt? Well, all joking aside, the rich and powerful, the people who have it all, guess what? They moved to Vail. They moved to Vail, Colorado to consume even more. It's vastly unchurched, and although it's beautiful and only inhabited by the elites of humanity, well, guess what? Opioid use is off the charts, along with other drugs, and the suicide rate is three times that of the national average. Well, what happens when one drives west across the state line and gets into the beautiful mountains of Vail, Colorado? Is it the scenery that causes such depression? No, of course not. That that doesn't make any sense. But here's the problem. People go there. They they might drive west across the state line to get into those mountains. But they're not properly enjoying the creator of those mountains first. And because of that, those mountains are not going to fill that God-shaped hole. They can't properly enjoy the mountains. Are we supposed to enjoy the mountains? Yes, we are, properly. But we don't worship them. We worship the creator of those mountains. And when we do that, when we get it right, we can go there and properly enjoy the mountains and properly enjoy winning Super Bowls. Whatever it is, you can properly enjoy good things when you properly enjoy the creator of those good things first. And to miss that mark, Oh, you will miss the entire purpose of life. You will waste your life and you will be depressed. Some people are depressed for eternity. It does not have to be that way. So what does the good life look like? Is it a drive back east across the state line, back into Nebraska, where our state motto is literally the good life? No, it doesn't work like that. We have plenty of depression, opioid abuse, existential meaninglessness right here in Kearney, Nebraska too. Make no mistake, it's right here too. However, if one is really going to live a good life in the objective sense, then he or she must approximate to the purpose in which they were created the purpose in which all humanity was created. Oh, make no mistake. 
You were created on purpose. You were created for a specific purpose. Well, for all of the vanities described in the book of Ecclesiastes, there's an answer. And the answer is found in Jesus Christ. He's the only answer, the only way to answer these questions, these problems. Consider how Jesus in the New Testament makes sense of what was written in the Old Testament. Solomon, although he missed the mark quite often, he does have a few moments of clarity in Ecclesiastes. According to Ecclesiastes 3.17, he says that God judges the righteous and the wicked. And later we find out that the righteous are only those who have accepted the love of Christ in 2 Corinthians 5.21. Solomon had another moment of clarity and noted that God has placed the desire for eternity in our hearts. Ecclesiastes 3.11. And we know that God has provided the way to eternal life through Jesus Christ in John 3.16. So ultimately, you see, every disappointment and vanity described in Ecclesiastes ultimately finds its remedy in Jesus Christ. The wisdom of God and the only true meaning to be found in life is through Christ. You see, Jesus Christ solves the problem. If you only leave here today with one thing, remember that. Jesus Christ solves the problem, and he's the only answer to that problem. You know, Ecclesiastes offers the Christian an opportunity to, to understand the, the hopelessness and the emptiness and the, the despair of what others are going through apart from God. In fact, it, it's a reminder for us to remember what it was like before we devoted our lives to Christ. It reminds us of those days, reminds us of what we've been saved from. But it's also a warning. It warns us of even what Christians, what can happen to Christians when we make the mistake of taking our eyes off of Christ and instead start focusing of the things of this world. Oh, Christians can mess up too. And we do. But when we, even when we take our eyes off of Christ, then we will ultimately run into depression. We will crash into depression. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Always keep your eyes on Christ. Those who do not have a saving faith in Christ are faced with a life that will ultimately become irrelevant. If there is no salvation and no God, then your life is objectively pointless and meaningless. And there's no purpose or direction to it either. The world under the sun, as Solomon says, apart from God, can be frustrating and cruel, way too brief. Your few decades on earth is way too brief when you think about that. Just a few decades? Meaningless. Apart from God, it's utterly meaningless. But with Christ... As it's been so eloquently said before, life is but a shadow of the glories to come in heaven that is only accessible through him. 
through Christ. Jesus is the only way to avoid objective meaninglessness. Jesus is the only way to fill that God-shaped hole inside each one of us. Now, I got to tell you, this is a hard truth. It's a hard truth. As soon as somebody starts saying, Jesus is the only way to fill that God-shaped hole. And to tell you the truth, many of his own followers back in the day, 2,000 years ago, they couldn't handle the truth. Some of his own followers turned their backs on Christ after hearing truths like that. And after watching many of them walk away, Jesus turns to his core disciples, his 12 core disciples, and says, what about you? Are you going to leave too? And Peter says, where else are we going to go? There's no other way. You've got the words of life. Where else are we going to go? There's no other answer to these existential problems. Where else are we going to go? You have the words of eternal life, is what Peter says. Where else are we going to go? Peter wasn't always the sharpest tool in the shed. But he did have a moment of clarity with that response. King Solomon also had a moment of clarity in which we can all benefit. In fact, he ended the entire book of Ecclesiastes with a very brief yet profound moment of clarity. Two verses that make sense of 12 otherwise depressing chapters. Solomon writes in chapter 12, verses 13 and 14, he says, Now that all has been heard, here is the conclusion on the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the duty of all mankind. For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it's good or evil. Well, several things come to mind. According to 1213, we see that every human was created for the objective purpose to walk with God and to keep his commands. And as we noted earlier, Jesus made it clear what those commands are. Love God, love all people. And this, according to Ecclesiastes, is the purpose of humanity, all humans, all mankind. This is not just the purpose for Christians in the church. No, God created all people and desires all people to know the truth and to be saved, according to 1 Timothy 2.4. And God does not desire anyone to perish, according to 2 Peter 3.9. And Solomon makes this clear centuries earlier. He says, all mankind was created to keep the commands of God. But we have a choice to make. We have a choice to keep God's commands or not. Second, with verse 12, 14 in mind, every moment on this side of eternity has eternal significance. You're going to be judged for it, according to Solomon. You're going to be judged for everything you think and everything you do. Judgment. Is it good or evil? What does that mean? That means everything you think, everything you do has eternal significance. It really matters because you really matter. Your life is not meaningless. Your life really does matter. You matter. You have eternal significance. Every day, every moment, 
eternal significance, at least if Christianity is true, and it is. Every moment can be used to encourage another in the faith, to influence another to come to Christ, to share the gospel, to love a neighbor, or not to do any of those things. Every moment of your life offers you a choice, a choice to live for God's glory or not. The choice is up to you, and you will be judged for your choices. Every deed will be judged according to Ecclesiastes. And if that's true, then Maximus was right in the movie Gladiator when he says, what we do in life echoes in eternity. That is true. What you do in life echoes in eternity. And because of that, your life, everything you do and everything you think has eternal significance. Oh, you matter. This life matters. In the end, King Solomon makes it clear that faith in God is the only way to find personal happiness and objective meaning in life. He decides to accept the fact that although life on earth is brief, it's ultimately worthless with God. But when we have eternity in mind, things change. Many people don't get to the end of Ecclesiastes because it's so depressing. And they miss those last two verses that make sense of the 12 preceding chapters that are otherwise depressing. Oh, apart from God, through Christ, life is depressing. But when you have a proper relationship with your Creator through Jesus Christ, your life becomes meaningful and you can properly enjoy things. With eternity in mind, life is anything but meaningless. Anything but meaningless. At least that's what the Bible says. God, thank you for creating us on purpose and for a specific purpose to know you, to be loved by you and to love you in return and to love all people. God, everything we do in life really does matter because it echoes in eternity. Our lives are eternal. It just matters where we spend our eternal lives, with you or divorced from you. God, I pray everybody here makes the choice to spend eternity with you and keep, keep your commands to love you for eternity. Thank you for how you first loved us. In Jesus' name, amen. Meaningful, meaningful. Everything is meaningful, utterly meaningful, eternally meaningful. At least that's what the Bible says if you read the whole thing. Right? Your life really matters. And when you have a personal relationship with the creator of the universe first, when you have a proper love relationship with him first, then we can properly enjoy all of the good things that he gives us to enjoy, that he wants us to enjoy. He just doesn't want us to worship those things first. Those things will leave us feeling empty when we try to take those things and shove them into that God-shaped hole. They don't fit. But God does. He's the only thing that fits. Jesus Christ makes it work. And I'm telling you, when you do that first, when you have that relationship right first, we can enjoy life the way it was meant to be enjoyed. You can enjoy the mountains. 
You can enjoy Super Bowls. You can enjoy your hobbies. You can love your family as they were supposed to be loved. You can love your neighbor as they were supposed to be loved. You can go to work and work for God's glory, not your own. Life starts to make sense when you know the creator of all life. So put God first. Seek after Jesus Christ. And enjoy your eternally significant life. Have a great rest of your Sunday and holiday tomorrow. God bless you. See you later.